Drawing from the Well is a podcast series from the youth wellness movement. We are educators, researchers, healers, parents, and community members striving to repurpose schools to address the critical wellness gaps in our youth's development. Founded by Community Responsive Education. This is a really difficult question. Why are you not doing this work, this pathway that you've been prepping for a long time to do? And I don't have, you know, the clearest of answers. This is still a new decision? You know, honestly, even though it feels like it's a long time coming, it's a new place to be sitting in and accepting. I think there are really three organizing factors. The first is that working within universities in an academic tenure track position ultimately is not going to provide the financial security that I really thought from the first time I ever heard of tenure <laughs> that it would provide. I used to tell my parents like, yo, you get tenure and they can't fire you. A job that you can't be fired from what? You know, like that's the kind of freedom that I was told was sort of mythological growing up. And so when I first heard of tenure, I didn't even know what a faculty member did. I thought that like any teacher, a faculty member was someone who taught classes. You know, and you know, teachers in my family, people worked in schools. So the concept of having a stable job was not foreign to me or to my folks, but this seemed like a kind of myth or a dream. One that came with what we thought would be even more funding, more money than like a high school teacher, junior high teacher, elementary school teacher. And my mom had done some of that work in my life. And so, you know, the idea was like, you were gonna be a professor and that was gonna come with all of this financial stability, this economic security. And I don't know how many stories I have heard about people who struggle through obtaining their undergrad and their master's and their PhD, their terminal degree. And then they fight through getting a postdoc and then they go to try to get a, an academic job, which takes its a toll in just moving in that way. And eventually they get the job and it's barely enough to pay the rent. They're hustling. I have faculty friends who drive for Uber. Most people that I know who are in this work are doing something else to support themselves. And there's no shade on that at all. Hustling in general and driving for Uber in general is not itself, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But I think that the myth that uh, obtaining a tenure track position would bring long-term security, I think those days are behind us for most people, let alone for college students who are you know, incurring greater amounts of debt. So faculty members are just college students who have been in school for a very, very long time and tend to have the greatest amounts of debt. And I would argue with some of the least viable returns on those investments. And I think the part of this is due to the sort of cults of personality that I've seen more clearly develop in the field it's probably always been here, but it's just something I've noticed over time that we tend to look to, myself included in all of this, people who are propped up as the face, you know, their image, their story, their way of working, the people who have the more what we consider conventional success, 
it's more like a lottery. You know, it's more like watching winners of a lottery and hearing their story over and over again. Or some other kind of like, you know, unlikely outcome. Where I grew up, there's this commercial on all the time about Larry H. Parker, the injury lawyer or attorney. And there's this one dude who's always like, Larry H. Parker got me. Started off with like X amount of millions of dollars and eventually he's like, oh, you know the story. And I, I feel like we kind of have that same feel or look with academics, even radical, radically positioned or situated academics is put out there, right? These are shows. These are um, expressions of people who have won. And it is not a path that is well-trodden, well-traveled, or necessarily the same outcomes for most people who obtain a PhD and seek out a tenure-track position. Truth is that most people do not have those outcomes. So it had this sort of problem at the ethical sense. The other ethical considerations that were coming up for me at the time was, you know, research, we're supposed to be doing this work with all of the caveats that we know are involved with higher education and all of its problems, right? We're doing this because the research itself could lead to some kind of shift in policy. It could lead to a transformation of how our people are positioned, right? Structurally, in the everyday sense, and not that it does not, right? Certainly there are shifts that result from what we think about, write about, and share out around. And certainly the impacts in any given person's life matters. And so having been myself impacted by academics or by professors or faculty and having, you know, relationships with students who tell me that what they learn from other faculty or from myself or whoever, like those are life-changing kind of engagements and any person's life who's transformed or embedded by our work is enough, right? I think to balance that with the fact that less than 15% of all research articles are cited, meaning we're not really talking to each other, people who are in the field, and in order to obtain tenure and move up to differentiate ourselves, we have to publish in more and more niche journals. You're competing with the concepts of impact factors. All these metrics and tools that we know haunt and sustain schooling are involved in the process of tenure and promotion right down to how many dollars did you literally bring in did the things that came out of your brain according to the academy how many of those thoughts led to how many dollars to you and then to the broader research agenda and then especially to the university what the university does with those dollars right we you know need to be accountable to as well there's military industrial complexes propped up the war machine right the prisons are propped up the Death-giving policies are propped up by research funds obtained by us. Patents drawn up on ideas that are created and crafted. That's just the like front-facing stuff, the underlying current or reality of sharing out real powerful strategy. How do we get more free for more of us? We go and publish that in books and pieces and articles and whatnot and that's also fodder. I remember reading a book report about Kwame Nkrumah's neocolonialism, you know, framework. And it was written by the CIA. You know, like, we know that the think tanks, if we do have a think tank, right, collective conscious that develops from our work, that is open, like open season. Universities hire their enemies. That's us, right? And 
this is something other people have said way better than I'm saying right now or could ever really articulate that we are need to be accountable to that, to that truth and to the proliferation of the mythology that these compromises are worth it by virtue of just getting information out there or by sharing work towards increasing critical consciousness because the compromises that come when we increase critical consciousness is that well our students need to continue moving up and in and through these institutions which we know come with a host of problems so that was another thing i i say lastly we know that we get sick we get sick and we die early trying to pursue a pathway that has been laid out over time as very clearly historically politically spiritually detrimental to our well-being there are a litany of stories there are many many bodies of people that were pursuing this work and were harmed by this over time life expectancy gaps for black women and femmes who obtain phds i mean there's the well-known cases and i'm thinking of the many nameless unnamed unrecognized acknowledged people who have lost their lives I mean, how many stories I've heard from women and birthing people about the children that they have lost in pursuit of the PhD, in pursuit of tenure especially. It's a road littered with dead bodies, dead black people. And again, if you take this back to former points about financial security and stability and the possibility of structural change, you know, I kind of just believe the Afro-pessimist argument that the world is anti-black, it's ontological, meaning the foundation of what we are in is inherently parasitic on black death and just black accumulation, accumulation of black bodies, of black life, etc., and indigenous dispossession. So if I take that to be true, then I don't know that I need to write something or say something that says the same thing, maybe articulates it in a more nuanced way. Underneath all of that, is that true or is it not true? Now, what black people create in the midst of all of this, I think that there's no amount of expression in any medium, but I just think writing and academic scholarship is such a constrained medium, but any medium, right, will never have enough to say about that. Unfortunately, that's just not the case for scholarship, right? Even when it's concerned with something like the cultural creations or aesthetic realities of black life making during anti-blackness in the midst of this, I don't know that telling the academy or its white publishing press or its white publications or, you know, its impact factors does anything for us collectively. Individually, it might maybe sustain us, right, but collectively. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done around abolition. I think about abolition as a process where we are dismantling and trying to create different uh, reality and world. So if I take the Afro-pessimist argument, the black critical feminist argument, the Betty McGee, my grandmother argument to be true, that this world is a world that's been shot through a prism that comes from the plantation. We're living in the afterlife of it and it needs to be dismantled and destroyed before black people ever experience anything like autonomy or survival then I just, I think we're left with a couple of options, right? Will we continue to try to prove that point and get more people on board with that point? Whatever that coalition is that we decide is necessary to build, 
or, and not to dichotomize it, but, or are we going to move towards creating a world that is not aligned with the one that we're currently in? And maybe people feel like they can do that within the academy. I don't begrudge that, I'm not against that. I personally think that there isn't really a place of practice where the empire will pay you, right, to undo it, right? So there's no really outside from this reality that will give us the same kind of currency that this reality requires. But there are other forms of currency and there's other ways to be accountable to other people, to other possibilities that I'm really interested in. As the season of being on the market and I still struggle with how easily that rolls off of my tongue. Think about the violences that my family has had to incur and endure in order for me to say that, uh, for any, any of us to say that without skipping a beat, right? The season of being on the market. I lost my uncle, he transitioned. I would say he transitioned early. He was the impetus for doing the research on telomeres with black students at UCLA. And one thing that my uncle told me as he was moving towards this space of transitioning was that he basically had to be a different animal every day when he went to work in these mostly white spaces in Oregon. And that that was a part, if not the part of his life that was most directly connected to his early demise. So in order to honor his battle with cancer, in order to honor the work that he was doing and continues to do as an ancestor and to honor and bolster the future of my children and the young people that I am in relationship with, my family, I feel like I am better suited and positioned to do the kind of work that builds a different sort of uh, world than to do a work that will try to, whether it's attempting to or not, resuscitate aspects of this world that really just need to die. So that's where I find myself here, you know, check in with me in the future and see how that all plays out. But I'm trying to do work that is in alignment with the research that we've actually engaged to bring my life practice into alignment with what I've been honored and blessed to learn from so many people around us. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Drawing from the Well. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. Today's episode focuses on alternatives to higher education. You just heard from my boy, Kenjis Watson, who shared with us some of his challenges in thinking about whether or not to pursue the academy and what it meant for him to make that critical decision. Next up, we have a really sacred and beautiful time with him and his baby, Ayan. And then... On our Mic Check 123 segment, we've invited the young people to be in conversation with us today. And so we have senior Jordan and Angus, who's in his first year of college, who talk with us about some of their challenges of schooling, the pressures that come from adults, and what it would mean for them to have a valuable education. You're in for a treat. All right. Hello. Hello. What's your name? Aya. Aya. How old are you? Two. You're two? Okay. Where do you live? In Rovia. In Rovia? Okay. What's your mommy's name? Kendis. <laughs> What's your daddy's name? 
Danielle. Oh, what's your baby brother's name? Nanshin. What's your puppy's name? One which not. It's 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 his doggy. It's doggy. Yes. That's not Hope. Yes. Oh, okay. Hope, I'm gonna make a puppy. Oh, is it Hope? <laughs> okay. Um, can I ask you a few questions? Yes. Okay. What's your favorite color? Red. Red? Yes. Okay. And what is your favorite toy? Green Newton. Huh? Green Newton. I get the strawberry one. Oh, strawberry one. I think that's Play-Doh. Um, what's your favorite food? What do you like to eat? Potatoes, green shines, potatoes, egots, strawberry, and oranges, potatoes. Mmm. Strawberry, oranges, and potatoes. Ah, oh, yeah, it tastes good. Uh, what's your what, what's your friend's okay. name? Okay. Oh, what? Who are your friends though? When you go on an adventure, who are your friends' names? Jack, Sierra. Jack and Sierra. Okay. Do you love mommy? Yes. Yes. Do you love Aya? Hope. <laughs> you love hope. Look at this, Dad. What's that? Oh, this. Oh, this dry mealy. It got here. That's for me. Do you love Anansi? Yes. Okay. You love Aya? Yes. You love Dada? Yes. You love Yaya? Yes. Uh, you love Titi? You love Caleb. You love Jordan. Yes. You love Amica. Yes. Alexandra. Yes. Uh, Grandpa. I dropped it. Oh, okay. Um, what did? Can you tell me? Uh, what happened? Or what did the tree say to you? Sayla. Sayla. Yes. Oh, okay. What does that mean? Potato. <laughs> Say la means potato. And what did the mountain say to you? Say mountain. Hmm. Um. What about the sun? Sun mountain's great. Where's the sun at? Is the sun asleep? Is the sun awake? Can you... You're nodding your head yes? Okay. What about the moon? Where's the moon? Oh. What does the moon say? Moon is say Rewa. It says what? Rewa. What does that mean? Weya. Weya? <laughs> so the trees say Selah and the moon says Weya. 
Okay. Ah! All right. Well, I'm going to be done with the interview. Do you want to say anything before we say bye-bye? Yes. What do you want to say? Not much? All right. Well, this is Ayan or Aya, and she's saying goodbye. Thanks for taking part in the interview. Thank you. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Mic Check 123. We're here today with Tiffany Marie. I got some really special guests with me, some young people. And really, that's what this podcast is all about, is seeking to create better futures for them. And so we have Jordan and Angus with us today. Welcome, y'all. Hey. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are, where you come from, if you want to talk about who your people are. And like what you spend the majority of your time doing these days. Hey guys, so I'm Jordan and I'm a senior at a local Las Vegas high school. And I do a lot of activities such as cheer. I'm president of Black Student Union and I'm in student council. But also my days also consist of a lot of homework. So that's also fun too. Oh, those days of homework. You said that's fun. I don't know if that was sarcasm or not. No, but. It, no, it's not fun. It's not uh, fun. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Angus, same question. Like, who are you? Where you come from? Who are your people? And like, what are you doing these days? My name is Angus. I'm a first year in college at Davis temporarily. I'm on a break right now. Basically taking a gap year because I had a really tough fall quarter. I come from China, Southern China, Hoi Ping. My parents are from a peasant village. I immigrated over here. I spend most of my days, I guess, taking care of my well-being and just figuring out myself for now and just taking the time to be with myself. Mm. You uh, had a certain inflection in your voice when you talked about your status in college, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Or maybe we can get to that now. Like, what was that? Ah, what was that sound? What was that about? It feels a bit weird. I mean... You know the stigma, you know, we're supposed to be in college and not doing good. And so, like, I'm not in college. You know, all my friends are in college. So it's, like, looked down upon in a way. I don't really care at this point, but it's still there. The pressure and everything. Mm-hmm. This goes for both of y'all. What do y'all think that's about coming from adults, this pressure for folks after high school to pursue college? It's just the way that society really works, especially in the United States. It's always been deemed to get a higher education, especially if you're a person of color. I know with my family, it was told, it was like taught to go to college right after high school. But that all changed last year because my brother ended up taking a gap year this year. So that actually changed my perspective on how I used to view going to college and realizing that that's not something that is always right for people. I actually encourage gap years actually because they give you more sense of self and get to focus on your mental health or just like trying to figure out yourself without spending all that money to do that. It just comes from older generations. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Jordan. I also feel like it's like a, there's a way of like fear for like the future and like no security for like our parents. They are I guess conditioned in like only know one way, which is college. I talked to my mom about it and like she's 
isn't scared for me technically, but she's just like worried about the future because she doesn't really know what I'm gonna do now. Mm-hmm. So like, there's like no plan. They think that college is like a one way, like you'll be okay as long as you go. No matter mm-hmm. Very interesting. Jordan, I know you have applied for colleges. Angus, you have actually experienced it already. Jordan, like what has been your experience in, you should already have notifications on whether you've got in a certain space. Like what has that experience been like for you? Okay. So I recently applied to about like six to 10 schools. And in the beginning, no one tells you that you have to pay for an application. That's the first red flag. (laughs) My family spent so much money and I'm like, oh my gosh, I felt so guilty about that. I was like, why do I have to pay for an application if for most of these schools, I know that I'm not going to get into. So mm. it was really daunting with that, but I just still had hope because I was like, you know, it's still an experience until mm-hmm. I got back my first decision and I applied to Howard University. That was one of my dream schools and I got waitlisted and it really didn't bother me (laughs) like I thought it would like it hurt but then I really looked at it and I was like this is just a competition I've done so much in my little 17 years of living that a lot of people haven't done and that still wasn't enough to be looked at for this college and it really did kind of hurt that I was an HBCU and this is like a place of community. So I had a conversation with my uncle and I was like, you know, I really feel bad for the people that think that this is their whole entire life and that their life is going to end because they're not getting into their dream college because that's not how life should be. So it did change my perspective on how I look at the way that applications work because it is a competition. No matter what you do, someone might have something, I guess, quote unquote, better than you. But I think that everyone's exceptional in their own little ways. So an application doesn't really show all of that. You're only showing what you're putting out. Mm, Very interesting. And Angus, you're coming out of high school. We think about this competition, the top of your class you've got amazing grades, and you want to pursue this route in mechanical engineering, right? Yeah. And so you've got this parade of people cheering you on, of course, because, wow, Angus is set up for success. Tell us a little bit about your first year of college. There was like a multitude of things that happened in the first quarter. It was core system, so it was like 10 weeks, and I took like, I guess, 18 units, I didn't know what I was doing. It was like way too much. And it was also during the pandemic. So like everybody had like their mask on and like, it was very like, not what I expected the college experience to be. But at the same time, I also enjoyed it because like, I guess during the first few weeks, we were like all excited, like teenagers. Oh my God, like this is it. But then as like midterms rolled through and finals rolled through, it became really depressing and like hard to just catch up with all the content and like, I had other factors going on in my life, so I couldn't like really focus on it. So it ended up like, it gets draining me more than it fulfilled me. It also made it worse because like you said, everybody was like cheering on for me. Mm. I like, thought I was like going to be okay. So I kind of had like a facade or like an image to keep up. And that was also draining as hell too. So when it all came crumbling down and I started telling everybody, it was like in a way defeating and like relief for myself because I don't have to like, keep up this image anymore and like actually be with myself in a way. 
Wow. You know, I know a little bit about Angus, your experience in having to take the courage to share with your family and your community that you were making a personal decision that would center your wellness to take a break from a space that was causing more harm than good for you, right? You said it was less fulfilling and more detrimental at that time. And when I look at it and think about what you did, that's amazing. That's the type of young people I want to be around who center integrity first around their well-being and take these risks to do that. Can you talk a little bit about adults' responses to you being courageous enough to center your well-being in that process? I got multiple responses. The younger generation of adults, they understand they actually support it. They're like, wow, it's pretty brave. They couldn't do it themselves. It's a hard thing to do. And then the older generation, I got a lot of backlash. They told me it would be a hard road. People who take gap year are like, have a higher statistic of not going back. How are you going to make money? How are you going to make rent? How are you going to survive? And like, give a plan. And like, you kind of ruin your, your, your chances. They're really harsh on it. But like, they're the older generation, so I, I kind of understand why they're like, they're like that. But I also have like a, a community of people that remind me that like this is okay. Like college will always be there, and like you don't want to like suffer your four years. So like, I was, like just be okay first, and then go back, and you'll be fine. Like it's not really a race. I mean, everybody has their own finish line. You know, your your own pace, and like their own definition of success. So like you shouldn't really compare yourself to other people. Being content with that idea, I've haven't let my outside people generations like try to like beat me down or like make me feel bad about my my decision. Mm, wow, Jordan, you're at a, such an interesting time now because you have this awareness. You said you've seen this model from your brother, and he's provided a very different pathway, and then you also seem to have a really great sense of who you are and your value that is not necessarily connected to rewards from this capitalist society. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do after high school? What makes sense for you? Well, that's the thing that's hard on me right now. It started like in January. I started realizing I was like, uh, going to school for this long, just because I want to help people, I originally, I really want to be a child psychologist because of my past and I want to help influence children's past. Yeah, spending all that money to go to school just to help other people really hurt me to a point where I'm like, I'm hurting myself while trying to help other people and no one's telling me that. I wanted to go to big name schools. I wanted to go to UCLA for so long and I wanted to go to all these other big schools and these big institutions and lately I was just like this is kind of worthless <laughs> um although I know what I want to do I'm not mentally prepared and that's the thing that a lot of people don't like to tell you about and it takes a lot out of someone's mental health to even be able to go to a college away from their family even if it is like four hours or an hour away so Recently, I was looking into gap year and taking time for myself just to make sure that I'm okay. 
and saving up money or going to my local community college or going to my local college out here, which would be a safer choice. So I've been really evaluating lately what I should do to plan out my future. But it's really sad that I have to do that kind of by myself because it's not my parents' decision at the end of the day. It's my decision and that can affect the rest of my life. So it has been really interesting to say the least doing this by myself and yeah I've been crying like every single night about it because it's scary that's really what it's been like lately mm. I feel like a lot of times we don't create space to listen to and create this narrative that senior year first year of college is solely this really exciting time for young people and so I really appreciate y'all centering how stressful how traumatizing how triggering these experiences can be when you both look back on your high school experiences based on what you know now what do you wish that time would have been spent doing given the wisdom that you now have from these experiences that's a tough question because still like i'm still in it but i have a lot of wisdom because my freshman year was the only full year of high school my wow. sophomore year i got cut off and it was covid so I was inside the house the whole entire year for junior year, which is one of the hardest years. And then this year, which is also a hard year, I think it's harder than junior year. Yeah. So I really wish that they would have taken the time to actually teach you valuable things. And this would have been the best time to teach kids how to manage money and stuff. But they didn't do that. They just kept on going along with their lesson plans. It was just like a system, like a factory. And it was like terrible and miserable. And I have not enjoyed high school ever since freshman year, to be honest. Um, mm. High school is not what it's made up to be. No. <laughs> mm. I think my high school was really underprepared for like academics or like system wasn't really that good. It was too easy to get like an A or 4.0. Like you could effortlessly do it without like trying and like... Mm -hmm. They didn't prepare you for college at all. Um, the terms of like our classes, the content we do, compared to what we should know as a freshman in college, it's like completely, completely different. And like the curriculum's off, and I had to struggle and like study myself and like get back on track with people that like are already ahead of me by like a tenfold because they go to like these big high schools and like they get extra help and all this stuff. But also, in a way, they don't teach anything about like finance, managing money, budgeting, like and like how to be an adult in a sense. They just teach you general education and expect you to figure everything else out. Hmm. Or like they have your parents expect you to figure it out. And like I have like really lucky parents that like know how to teach me this. So like in a way, I'm I'm very grateful. I'm like very lucky. But not most students have like that type of education or like people that, that can teach them that and like i feel like if they implemented that more in high school it would be way better yeah but one thing that my high school did pretty good was focus on our mental health and like our well-being our high school more focused on like that more than academics in a way it worked and also in a way it didn't work because i feel like i'm well more like off in terms of like social and my identity compared to like my academic skills but i'd rather have this more than my academic skills because looking at college 
a lot of these kids are like they're very smart, very smart, like you know, four point you know, nerds, I guess. But like they have like little to no social skills or like coping mechanisms. They're like a slave to like the college system. Like when I would be in midterm for finals, I would see like a kid, you know, get a B or like I guess fail or not do good, and they would have like a meltdown and like it looks so bad and like they clearly that's all they do in a way my high school should have focused on more academically but at the same time i appreciate what they offered to me that's so interesting the two of y'all talked about money management and and i'm wondering where that demand is coming from is it about being thrust into adulthood and into a capitalist system that relies on money is that why y'all are like well that's the stuff i need to be prepared for yeah look at the world right now and they're expecting me like i'm not even 18 yet i will not be 18 until august they're expecting me by the time that this school year comes so when my birthday hits to know what i'm doing and to have all this money it is stigmatized by the age of 25 to have your life together to have a family, to have like a big house on the hill and all these expensive cars and stuff. And it's not true. I've seen it firsthand with my own family. My mom has worked her butt off in college and we're still not at the top of the hill. <laughs> like we don't have all that cars and stuff. And the thing is, it's because we're told to go straight to college or do all this stuff, but we all don't have money. Then I'm going into more debt with money that I didn't have before. So I really think it's shameful that we're kind of being tricked to go without any money. Uh-oh, you shedding some light because it, what scares me and I have a little grief around is it seems like this idea of, like I say, your ideal high school experience is still dictated by this demanding society. So I'm gonna actually ask y'all to use some imagination and Angus, it was interesting also that you talked about this pull between wellness and preparation for higher education, <laughs> knowledge of self, identity, and then academics as if they can't coexist. But I hear you. I think a lot of times when I work with teachers and educators and we want to center wellness, we want to center mental health, they're like, but what are they going to do? You know, afterward, that's not going to prepare them for the real world, as people say. And it's interesting because what we do with young people dictates the type of world we will have. What we focus on creates what is the real world. So I'm gonna ask y'all to use your imagination. Let's say that you did not have the demands of making all this money. You did not have demands of being tools in a capitalist system. Let's say that those things didn't exist and life was more limitless okay what do you think young people ages let's just say 14 to 18 what would you dream of them being able to do if there weren't those requirements at the end of year 18. yeah <laughs> they would be able to do the things that a lot of teenagers weren't able to I wanted to do dance my whole entire life, but I couldn't afford it. And my little sister, she loves doing gymnastics, but it's so expensive. And 
it's something that she's really good at and that she could get somewhere with if she had money to get there. So I really think that children would be able to do the activities that they love and spend more time on that than just academics. They could actually do something that they want a passion with and they could actually enjoy high school because I know everyone likes to say they look back at high school and think that those are their glory days. And I'm looking back at my high school experience already. I'm like, this is not fun. This is terrible. I was going through a pandemic. This is ridiculous. I want to get out of it. There would be less regret actually it would be great. Like, I wouldn't say it's a utopian society because nothing's ever perfect, but it would be like a sense to find yourself more than money, which is something I value a lot more than just cash and stuff. Yeah. Similar to Jordan, it's almost like a, like a utopian society. I don't think it's possible. Not with this country and this society, capitalism. We're literally built on money. I think the way our brains are wired or like or the way I'm wired is like, does doing this going to give me money? Is it going to save me money? Am I going to spend too much money? Yeah. And like, I've been given the opportunity to do a lot of things, but as I grow older, I realize how expensive it is. Um, so like, I go snowboarding every year with my family and everything is like, expensive. From the lift pass, it's like a hundred a day. Then you have the boots, gear, the board. It's almost like a thousand dollars. So I'm like, how does someone afford that? And then, like, imagine we're living in San Francisco, rents like twenty five hundred a month. Like, I wish. <laughs> hired. Yeah. So, like, how do you even do any of these things? So, I would assume, like, if it was limitless, I feel like a lot of people would be more happy. No more slaving to money, like corporations, like actually in tune to their like passions and like without worrying about like, oh, is it going to pay the bills and stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone would be happier. I just wish it was possible. I think I'm weird enough to think it is possible. And I think the interesting thing about our society is it's run by people. And people dictate what we agree to do and what we don't agree to do. Even the idea of, you know, what was really interesting about the pandemic, I don't know if y'all were aware of this, but for years when I was in high school, SAT, 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 take the testing. And then when the pandemic hit, magically, we were able to take it away. Magically, state standards aren't important. Magically, we graded very differently. We had to adjust to the reality that was before us. And Jordan, you talk about people returning to business as usual, which I agree is happening now. But I think we forget 2020. It was such an interesting year as it relates to schools, because most of the things that I grew up with that people told us that we can't live without, we lived without them and we're still here. (laughs) And universities adjusted, classroom teachers adjusted. And so I very much believe that we can do those things. We can make those shifts. But unfortunately, Jordan, to your point, we're kind of back to business as usual. And part of this podcast, part of my work is always about, well, what does it mean to return to the things that we imagine? Yeah. And even in that imagination, I think there may be some things that y'all have experienced that are ideal that you would want more of. And so this next question is based on your reality, but I'm hoping to put it in the imagination of educators. When you think to high school or even maybe even middle school, 
where did some of your educators get it right? What were some of the things that you experienced or maybe one that stands out where you're like, oh, we need a lot more of that to create a type of society that actually ensures that everyone is seen as phenomenal. Yeah, I, that, I finally got that maybe my freshman year and then now. <laughs> my freshman year, I had a PE teacher who was amazing. Like you wouldn't think that a PE teacher would actually influence me so much, but he took the time out of his day to realize that these kids that were trying to go down some path, like that's not them, like they're good people and fought for them a lot. And then this year, I also have another teacher. This class is called JAG, which is Jobs for Nevada's Graduates. And it's a great program because it does teach you how to get employed and life after college. So that's what I've been taking so I can get more help. He takes time to focus on his students. He wants his students to actually succeed and not succeed in the way with money or something. No, succeed in the way that they can find themselves and actually build on top of that. He takes the time to ask us how we're doing. And this is the only teacher that I'm like, I know that if I were to go to him and talk to him about something serious, he would take that seriously. He literally let us like make food in class one day. Weird, oddball teacher. But like, it's fun because he got to interact with his students and it's all about the interactions. It's all about your first approach towards someone because I've had teachers that they were good educators, but they weren't good teachers. Ooh. To be a good teacher, I believe, is someone that actually cares for their students' environment, their well-being and stuff. A good educator is you can teach the subject very well. And I think a lot of people get that mixed up and they don't want to say it because the person is nice. But I'm not afraid to say like, yeah, you're a good educator. You're, you're not the best teacher that I've ever had. Mm. I mean, there's staff that have treated me better than teachers. So they get underrepresented. So yeah, that's really where I stand with that. Wow. Angus, what you got? Up until high school, I've had good teachers, but middle school down, not really. It was basically educators, according to, yeah, according to Jordan. Not really good teachers. And the only one that I actually remember and respect, he wasn't even a teacher. He was like a teacher in training and like, all I remember is him acknowledging everything I say and uh, just listening to me. He didn't like do much, but it meant the world to me, acknowledging me and like listening to what I have to say and like supporting everything I say within reason, like not nothing crazy. It gave me like the motivation and like I still have his note from like what third grade. It still resonates with me to this day, and like I still remember him. I don't know where he is now, but it's still there. Uh, first impression your interactions matter the most also as a teacher like everything you do they'll see and they'll take it to heart students that's why it's a very difficult job in a way because they're always watching you observing you adopting you if you mess up one time you can be really detrimental to the development of the child but past that my high school i've been lucky enough to be like a part of this program it's called h2o and we focus solely on well-being and our development as a person and every mentor i met all the people i've been around with it's helped me develop a lot more as a person because i was conditioned as like a your typical nerd like 
all I focused on was on school. I had no social skills. I didn't know anything about myself. I just knew school. So like after going through like these teachers, I was able to figure out like what I like, what I want, my own identity, my own culture, everything about me, my heritage. And it was cool because relatively our high school, we had a lot of young teachers, like 30s. But like in a way that you can tell from first impression that you can tell like they're young and like they know compared to like old teachers. Like there's a disconnect between them because they're always grumpy most of the time. And like, how do you, <laughs> why, why do you teach? We don't want to connect with you. Mm. So it's, it's just completely different. But the young teachers are like, they genuinely care about you. They want to help. And like sometimes students are like, you know, assholes. So like, <laughs> yeah, they, they take advantage of that. But at the same time, they still offer to help. Like they don't respond back with like aggression because in a way it's not their fault. They probably got trauma from like previous teachers. Mm. So I like the way that these teachers uphold like their principles and values despite getting a backlash from students. Very interesting. I mean, this interview has been intense because we've gone, we've navigated these ideas of being prepared to enter capitalist society, centering wellness, this idea of teaching and educators versus teachers, really interesting paradigms here. And there's one demographic that we have not talked to particularly, and that's your peers. And I think we're going to do this as we close out. I want you to think about young people, Jordan, who are in the same position as you, or maybe who are juniors. And Angus, I want you to think about folks who are in their junior and senior year of high school. And I want you to build up all the strength that you have inside of you to give them the most affirming, supportive, loving pep talk for what they need to remember about themselves as they enter this grueling, as you all have described it, aspect of their adolescence. What would you say to them? What do they need to remember? Mm, run, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 Ooh, I would tell them, since I'm in the same boat, that there's other people around you that are there that understand it they're just silent about it because they're basically forced to be silent about it and that it's okay to have this fear because this system is based on fear you're working so hard because you're fearful that you're going to be sleeping on the streets or eating nothing that night if we show that fear a little bit more then maybe we can get somewhere in life to show that this isn't okay and that with our future generation like we can improve this for the next generation and then the next one after that. This does not have to be life forever. This is something that we can change. Do not stress yourself out. I wish I would have done that from the beginning, but I had a lot of stuff occur this year that didn't allow me to see that fully. Enjoy high school. As much as I said that I don't like it, there's some qualities that made me regret not enjoying it a little bit more because I was so stressed out. Hmm. School. That academic stuff, although I say like it's important, it's also not important to a sense where you have to just sit in front of now a computer to do your work and take brain breaks, go out with friends. It's okay to meet new people. It's okay to 
eat your favorite food. I mean, that's also a part of like health and wellness. Eat, actually. I don't know what teenager needs to hear that, but eat, sleep, wake up, sleep in as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's life. I mean, <laughs> it's sad that I even have to say that because I'm basically reminding myself to do those things. Mm. So I sound like a hypocrite, but that's what it is. And don't let adults get to your head because they like to say things that they went through, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go through that. And you set your own path. So in the most respectful way, choose the right one that's for you, but also focus on your values. Don't listen to other people's values because you're forming your life, not anyone else. Like, And I wish that someone got that in my head when I was a little bit younger. I mean, they tried to, but I was so hard-headed that I was like, no. <laughs> but yeah, this is your life. This is your future. If you want to do something, I say do it. Just do it a smart way. And yeah, be happy. Enjoy life. Don't let these stressors get to you so much. Mm. Oh man, that was good. Uh, I'd say you'll be okay. Like half the time, you're just overthinking and you're stressing the hell out. You're definitely not alone. Me and Jordan clearly just talked about ourselves. A lot of people are going through the same thing we're going through, but we just don't want to show it, you know, because it's vulnerable. We look weak. But I feel like, yeah, if we shared it, if everybody knew we were going through the same things, we would probably be struggling together more than fighting against each other. Definitely get disciplined. You need good habits. Eat, sleep. Those are really important, like, especially now. Because if you don't take care of yourself right now, it's going to hit you in the end. Take care of yourself in the present. You'd be way better off in the future. Like, your future, you would, like, thank you so much. Like, why would you wake up at, like, 6 a.m. to do SATs in, like, three hours? And, like, what the hell is that going to do to you? Just take care of yourself. I understand that you might have parents, outside perspectives, society beating down on you, pressuring you. And you probably have like a set mind already of like what to do. But deep down, I know that you really don't want this, like to go through that. Like you just want to be carefree and like be open, like no responsibilities in a way. But you'd be okay. What, what are we, 18, 14, 18? You got 20 years to mess around. <laughs> you'd be fine. Like, you'd be fine. Like, you'd be okay. You're thinking too much. Just, just like me. <laughs> just have a plan. Yeah, you'll be okay. Mm. It is so deep. Jordan, you said it, and I'm hearing it from you, Angus, as well. It's like while you're talking to these young folks, you're, you're definitely talking to yourselves. I heard that at the end, Angus. You'll be okay. And the reality is y'all are so beautiful and powerful. And I'm so grateful for the sacrifices that you have made. And it's so sad that it's a sacrifice. It should be a way of life that comes without punishment and scrutiny. We should be the communities that are supporting you for your courage, for your integrity, to speak out, to make moves that are different. And as one adult, I wanna both apologize on behalf of adults, but also speak life in that y'all are setting a stage for so many other young people to be able to live a lot more healthy, more whole, and conscious of who they are and their purpose in the world. And so 
I'm so excited about listening back on this interview years from now to compare it to where you all will be because of this major shift that you decided to take, whether it's in consciousness or in your spirit or in actual moves and decisions. I'm so excited and confident in what this will lead to, not just for you, but for the sake of the field of education years from now. So thank you for being the front runners, the renegades, the leaders of this work and this movement. And um, thank you so much for your time today, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. I'm leaving today's episode both saddened and inspired. I'm saddened by the tremendous pressures that are placed on our young people around what they'll do after their senior year of high school. And I'm saddened about the ways in which a fast-paced capitalist society compromises their dreams and values. I'm inspired because today they stood in their power. They've taken courageous decisions to say no to so much of what we unfortunately have consented to. I'm inspired by the type of teaching and parenting that has led to such courageous young people. And I think back to Ayan and her free spirited nature. I think back to (laughs) her joy, her happiness, and her sense of belonging and love from her mommy and her daddy. And I'm inspired to create a world where she does not have to compromise her spirit and her well-being so that she can stand in her truth, so that she can self-actualize, and so that she can live up to her sacred purpose. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drawing from the Well, brought to you by the Youth Wellness Movement. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. This podcast is co-produced by yours truly and John Reyes, with music by my boy Jansen V. Drawing from the Well is supported by Community Responsive Education. Continue the conversation at youthwellness.com.